Thank you, Anne, uh, Lauren, Bill. It's quite a posse. Um, I really was charmed to hear that Anne read the book because I've been giving interviews, and I promise you that some people can talk to me for an hour without having read the book. <laughs> so thus the media. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, one of our kids, Rick Eberstadt, worked on the Hill for a while. So to be in a room full of staffers is to make me feel right at home. I'd like to start today with a little thought experiment. If we step outside the 24-7 news cycle and survey our society from above, what particular features might we see that distinguish us from Americans who have gone before? Well, one signature development of our time amounts to a remarkable fact. We live in a moment when a great many people are struggling to answer the most basic human question, who am I? <clears throat> identities of all kinds have proliferated, ethnic identities, gender identities, feminist and other political identities, and so on. So in Primal Screams, I'm asking why? How did it ever come to pass that unlike the generations before us, many of us don't even know who we are until we can answer that question by way of attachment to some collective political group? I wrote the book to address that confusion and to see what's really driving it. In a nutshell, my thesis is this. Our macro politics have become a mania about identity because our micro politics are no longer familial. Primal Screams continues a line of argument in an earlier book, How the West Really Lost God, published in 2013. That book asked a similar question. How had it come to pass that unlike the generations before us, Ours was increasingly turning its back on God and falling away from organized religion. That book argued that conventional accounts of the decline of Christianity were insufficient and that a new theory was in order. The contemporary emptying of the churches, I argued, was due in large measure to the social transformations following the sexual revolution. These changes had served to interrupt the transmission belt of religious learning. <clears throat> Following Ludwig Wittgenstein's observations uh, about the impossibility of having a private language, a language that only one person speaks, I argued analogously that religion is practiced and learned in community, including and especially the community of the family and that the post-1960s disruption of this traditional school had amounted to losing the language of faith for many people. So the present book, Primal Screams, is a logical follow-on. It takes the argument about radical social change and applies it to another large sphere, politics. Primal Screams focuses on the fact that questions of identity uh, and identity politics have become central to American life. The book asks why this has happened and proposes an answer that's unlike those that have come before. Now, many voices, pro-identity politics and con, have asked 
what this new code of conduct within the polity is doing to us, I'm asking a different question, which is what the nonstop obsession with identity is telling us about ourselves, our society, and our civilization. My purpose is not to excoriate identity politics, as many other writers do, and um, take great joy in doing in some cases. My purpose instead is to put forward a new theory of why so many people seem to have lost their very selves, with the result that Western polities res now resound with languages of loss, fury, and rancor. So in what follows, I'd like to give you a sense of the book's argument. The first set of facts linking today's massive confusion about identity to the decline of the family is simple. It amounts to arithmetic, more especially subtraction. Think about all of the post-revolutionary phenomena that were once rare or stigmatized or both that are now commonplace. Abortion, fatherlessness, divorce, single parenthood, childlessness, the shrinking family, and the shrinking extended family. Leave aside the moral content of any of these decisions. The net effect of all of them is to subtract people from other people's lives. It's to reduce the number of people we can call our own. And since we are relational creatures, social animals, the result is a great vacuum. And that is what a lot of the increasingly panicked flight to collective identities is about. So as I emphasize in the book, the focus of this argument isn't on any single one of these post-revolutionary acts of choice. It's instead about the collective environmental impact <clears throat> of many millions of such instantiations of autonomy taken over the course of the past 50 plus years. Now, m many Americans, and not only progressives and liberals, uh, believe that the liberated post-1960s order amounts to a plus for humanity. Many people would say that their own lives have been enhanced, and mightily so, by the freedoms that only the revolution could bring. I'd like to interject here that the book includes commentaries from three thinkers, uh, social conservative Rod Dreher, uh, leading liberal Mark Lilla, and libertarian-leaning Peter Thiel. And in Mark Lilla's response, uh, th this is the essence of his objection, is that he says the sexual revolution did make the world a better place. But if we step back from our solipsistic selves and we ask what these changes have wrought collectively, an unsettling picture emerges. As the book lays out, to study the timeline is to see that identity politics and identity anxiety have grown in tandem with the spread of the sexual revolution. Along the way, there have been some important signposts that social scientists and others have picked up on, signaling just how radical the new social environment has become. 
So almost 20 years ago, for example, in his landmark book, Bowling Alone, political scientist Robert Putnam mapped the dislocations of declining communities and associations in the United States. His is one kind of empirical guide to just how radically life has changed. Once upon a time, the question, who am I, could be answered by reference to one's bowling league, in his example, or one's role as a scout leader, or other forms of civic engagement that used to be much more common than they are now. To some extent, of course, one can still answer the question, who am I, with reference to those associations. But again, as Putnam's work showed, all were in decline. So around the same time Putnam was writing, one of the most eminent social scientists of the 20th century, James Q. Wilson, summarized decades of sociology to make a similar point. But whereas Putnam was looking at society, Wilson was looking at the family. And he argued that American society had changed at the root as measured by many indices and studies. He identified its fracturing in the dissolution of the family. And he described what he called the two nations of America in a famous speech that went on to become an essay. Wilson argued that the dividing line between these territories was no longer one of income or social class. Instead, it had become all about the hearth. It is not money, he documented, but the family that is the foundation of public life. And as it had become weaker, every structure built upon that foundation has become weaker. He pointed to the library that social science had been building for decades, filled with books and studies about the correlations between fatherlessness in particular and various behavioral outcomes. The important take home to Wilson's work was that family structure had become more important to positive outcomes than race, income, or one's station at birth. But as compelling as it is, social science isn't the only way of affirming that the fractured post-1960s order has been raising fundamental questions of identity for a long time now. 15 years ago, uh, in an essay called Eminem is Right, published in Policy Review, I documented at 6,000 words length, which you can't do anymore in magazines, <laughs> I documented something that seemed and still seems like a seminal fact. Family rupture, family anarchy, and family breakup had become the signatures of Generation X and Generation Y pop. So I'll just read you a little summary written 15 years ago. If yesterday's rock was the music of abandon, today's is that of abandonment. The odd truth about contemporary teen music, the characteristic that most separates it from what has gone before, is its compulsive insistence on the damage wrought by broken homes, family dysfunction, checked out parents, and especially absent fathers. Papa Roach, Everclear, Blink-182, Good Charlotte, Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana, Tupac Shakur, Snoop Doggy Dog, 
and Eminem, all of these award-winning top 40 performers who either are or were among the most popular icons in America have their own generational answer to what ails the modern teenager. And surprising though it may be, the answer is dysfunctional childhood. Or to put it ironically, during the same years in which progressive-minded and politically correct adults have been excoring, excoriating Ozzie and Harriet, Ozzie and Harriet was a television show that was on before I was born, so I, I won't blame you for not knowing it, but Ozzie and Harriet became the most hated on couple in television history because they had a happy marriage and an intact family, and um, so they became an emblem for the left. But anyway, during the same years in which Ozzie and Harriet were being excoriated, many millions of American teenagers have enshrined a new generation of music idols whose shared signature in song after song is to rage about what not having a nuclear family did to them. So the book includes other proofs of what I think is the connection between family decline and the rise of identity politics. But in the 1990s and early 2000s, identity politics wasn't yet the omnipresent headline that it became. But even so, the effect of family decline on the sense of self was already being writ large across the popular culture. A lot of that music I just listed is about rage at the status quo, about wanting to be somewhere else, about wanting a different life, and about fury at adults who play revolving roles in children's lives. In other words, a lot of popular music in the decades leading up to identity politics was already about a cratering sense of identity on the part of many kids. And this is true above all in the case of the fiery emotional connection that generations of teenagers have now found with Eminem who is the, the Greek chorus of family dysfunction. So in other words, long before today's identity panics on campuses, a lot of young America was already stumbling over how to answer the question, who am I? Just listening to what they were driving up the charts proved the point. So you can find other proofs and signposts and primal screams, but I would like to fast forward now to where we are today. It's a sobering place. At the national level, we see the divisiveness of identity politics, this new and crabbed and restrictive anthropology of the human person, according to which you cannot understand me unless you match my coordinates on the intersectionality grid. Simultaneously, we see other signs of disunity and pathology. Declining life expectancy in the white working class for the first time in recorded history. Mass shootings, rising psychiatric trouble, especially among the young. And this is something I've been trying to call attention to for 15 years now. And in the beginning, the argument came back, well, no, there's always been mental illness. We're just better at diagnosing it. That consensus has changed. And today, virtually every expert would admit that the rise in anxiety, the rise in depression, and the rise in OCD are real. I think that's a problem. There's also a rising loneliness among old and young people. This was the hardest part of the book to write, actually, because when you look at 
very current sociology, what you see is an explosion of what are called loneliness studies, which are exactly what they sound like. Um, when these first started proliferating, people were looking at loneliness among the elderly, but then some sociologists thought to look at loneliness among younger people and found that people in their 20s are the loneliness, loneliest of all. And of course, white nationalism's resurgence and the unprecedented drug addiction uh, that we see in the opioid crisis. So I think it's a radical fact that our society is worsening by numerous measures and that that fact calls for a radical new argument. Primal Screams argues that the post-1960 social phenomena have amounted to a massive perturbation of the human ecosystem and that these effects are increasingly visible as well as harmful, and that they are playing out now in national politics where many dislocated individuals are frantically trying to answer the question, who am I, via politics because they cannot answer it any way else. Now, these effects that I'm describing do not affect everyone equally, obviously, and there is also not some one-to-one -one crude correspondence here. The argument isn't about individuals, it's about the collective environment. And the analogy I would use is imagine a lake that's downstream from a factory that's dumping toxins into the water. Some of the fish are affected and some of the fish are not, and scientists will never be able to say why one and not the other. But again, this is about a collective environment and the anxiety that is free-floating in our collective environment as social animals over this question of identity. This brings us to a critical stipulation. Yes, of course, racism, sexism, cruelty towards sexual and other minorities obviously exists. Cruelty exists, period. And it's everywhere and always to be opposed. In some cases, clearly injustice drives people to embrace collective identities by way of protection. As mentioned in the book, for example, it makes sense that Native Americans objected when Victoria's Secret put a headdress and very little else on a model, and the headdress happened to be a sacred object uh, in somebody's tradition. It makes sense that people would object to something like that. It makes sense that African Americans and other Americans object to the existence of public reminders of racism. My point is that in a healthier political environment, we could have a rational conversation about these affronts <coughs> on a case-by-case -case basis. But that is not our environment. Identity politics is not typically expressed in a rational vernacular. In the book, I have one particular chapter that looks very closely <coughs> excuse me, at the language of identity politics because I think it's fascinating. Look at the demonstrations on some campuses. The stomping, the screaming, the monosyllabic chanting, the protesters who duct tape their mouths shut, the frenzied attempts to shut down speakers. Look what happened at Middlebury College and put it in plain English. 
That was a gang of young men <clears throat> physically attacking a man in his 70s and a woman who was middle-aged. This is not politics as usual. These are dangerous exercises in collective irrationalism. Or look at the protests by feminists on the National Mall in 2017, the Women's March, or on the steps of the Supreme Court following any decision that bears upon abortion. These demonstrations have involved <clears throat> screaming, weeping, dancing, on such a scale and with such passion that numerous observers have noted that they look more like raves or religious revivals than like political protests. And that, again, is my point. In much of what passes for politics these days, we are not seeing reasoned debate. We are seeing pre-rational assertions of identity. And that's what makes such politics hard to contend with to anyone who is not part of them. Just as political and other identities have become substitutes for the more robust identities of family and community, so are these new identities defended with the kind of passion that most people once brought to defending families and communities. That, I think, is the most important point to understand. Politics is being increasingly driven by primordial needs and desires that have been detoured into politics. That's why the book is called Primal Screams. I'd like to offer one more example of what I'm talking about. <clears throat> that was an outburst that greeted Jordan Peterson at McMaster University in 2017. Like other speakers subjected to such abuse, he commented afterwards on the wrongs done to the cause of free speech, because people with a bullhorn kept chanting these repetitive, you know, one-syllable things at him. But I watched the video of that event and saw something else, which is it captures scores of people screaming and chanting nonstop. This was nothing like a civil rights protest. This language was ripped straight from chapter nine in Lord of the Flies when the frenzied boys are chanting. So in sum, I think the chronic regression to pre-adolescent language and behavior is testimony to something important about identity politics its pre-rational origins. So to summarize, um, <clears throat> because I want to leave a lot of time for questions, who am I is a universal human question. It becomes harder to answer if other basic questions are problematic or out of reach. Who is my brother? Who is my father? Where, if anywhere, are my cousins, my grandparents, nieces, nephews, and the rest of the organic connections through which humanity up until now has channeled everyday existence? Trends since the 1960s, combined with new technologies, have rendered all of the assumptions, all of the givens that our forebears had, now negotiable. So as a closely related matter, the other traditional way of answering that universal question by appeal to religious faith 
is also now off the table for many people. For millennia, most human beings have answered that question, who am I, by appeal to another kind of familial relationship. I am a child of God. It's what religious people would say. That's my identity. That's what matters most about me. It's not my sex. It's not the color of my skin. It's not my erotic leanings. Those are not essential. My identity is I'm a child of God. <clears throat> but in an age of rising religious illiteracy, like ours, that's one more answer to the question of identity that is off limits to many people. So the panic over identity is being driven by the fact that the human animal has been selected for forms of socialization that for many people no longer exist. In closing, I would like to say just a few words about the contributor <coughs> contributors at the end of the book. Um, I'd like to commend Mark Lilla in particular, who disagrees most vehemently, for doing so respectfully and with civility. Uh, and Rod Dreher and Peter Thiel also are respectful and civil. We all have our differences, but we hoped with this book, by including criticism at the end, to set an example of what it can look like to agree to disagree, including about fundamental things. We wanted to have an example that was at odds with the incivility characteristic of identity politics. The hope is to open a conversation where none yet exists. And it's a conversation that I believe is both necessary and overdue. In the end, Discussion of today's crisis over identity concerns anthropology more than it does politics. We post-revolutionary people are bearers of a false anthropology that overestimates our solitary selves and self-sufficiency and underestimates our need for one another in the most elemental ways. That conviction is why I wrote How the West Really Lost God and now this follow-on book. That consensus is what Primal Screams is trying to change. So thank you very much for your attention. I'd love conversation. Thank you.